All right, everybody, I want to welcome uh, John Arezzi to the show. Uh, thank you, John, for being here today. I've been looking forward to this one all week, so thank you. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's great to uh, great to meet you. Yeah, finally, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so you have had quite an interesting career and were very influential in many different ways in uh, professional wrestling media, I feel. Uh, kind of a groundbreaking in a way where you had a radio show back in your day, which uh, was way ahead of its time. And breaking kayfabe uh, a lot after a couple of years. So how did you, how did you, first I want to just go back before that though, but like, how did you get interested in this wonderful world of professional wrestling? It was like everybody does as a fan. And yeah. I was a fan since I was about seven years old. And, um, you know, I'd find it, I'd lose it. Then in my early yeah. teens, I just kind of rediscovered it again. It was, um, yeah. It was uh, reading the wrestling magazines and then finally getting to go to a show in New York when I turned 14 years of age because there was a law you couldn't get into a show until you were 14 in New York. And that really gave me the that gave me the bug when I went to my first live show, August 30th, 1971. Wow. That's kind of similar to like how mine was like I was kind of semi interested until that very first live show. Uh, and then that's when I became obsessed in a way like that, that first live show just did it for me. But mine was 1988 was my first live show. I, I had been a fan kind of for like five years, roughly before that. So, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was fortunate to be in uh, some really glory years. And, uh, and as I was a, you know, a kid reading the wrestling magazines, Freddie Blassie was always very fascinating to me because of his yeah. career. And uh, so I decided to start a fan club for him really in 72 and, uh, and actually had gotten a permission slip signed uh, in a crazy story. But anyway, I mean, that's how I really got started. I started Blassie's fan club uh, as a 14, 15 year old kid. And how did that, how did that go? Like, was that, that what was it like running a fan club? First of well, all, I've I never mean, had that experience. I'd read the magazines. I saw that, yeah. you know, a lot of the top guys had fan clubs like uh, mm -hmm. Bruno San Martino and yeah, almost everybody had a fan club. And I was like, right. I'm going for Blassie. And uh, and I read in the magazines, you got to get the guy to sign a permission slip, giving you permission. And I uh, coaxed my way to the dressing room entrance at the garden, December 71. And I convinced the security guard to go in the back. And and he came out a few minutes later with a signed permission slip. Uh, the kid I was with uh, at the time said, that's not real. That guy just signed it. So I mailed it to Jeff Walton in California, who actually ran Blassie's fan club and was doing PR for the LaBelle promotion at the Olympic Auditorium. And a few weeks later, Jeff sends me a letter back with the permission slip that it's authentic and sent me a bunch of Blassy stuff and programs. And, and that was it. And uh, he kind of mentored me along the way. And then the first issue was published probably seven or eight months later. And it was just kind of, I didn't know what I was doing. I just sat in my bedroom with a little typewriter and wrote out some stories of Blassy. And I was able to get somebody, uh, Mimeo, it was a Mimeograph machine that they right. used, which was rudimentary. And uh, plugs came out in some of the magazines. Uh, sample issues were sent out to the fan club column uh, people. And, and that's where it started. But uh, it was the connection with Jeff Walton, who who would pass along the newsletters I called King of Men to Blassie. And then Blassie started writing me letters. And that's kind of how it happened. And then before you know it, um, Blassie's back in New York in 73. March of 73, I get a letter from Fred inviting me to the garden. And I had my tickets ready, but, you know, inviting me to meet him 
at the garden. So I take that letter to the security entrance. And a few minutes later, they whisk me back and I'm there with Blassie. Uh, I interviewed him, took some pictures, and he always cooperated with the club. And the club got better and better, um, you know, 100 or less distribution. But we won Fan Club of the Year in 74. We won Best Monthly Fan Newsletter in 74. We won the After Magazine Fan Club of the Year in 74. So that's what kind of got my name out there. And then I started freelancing and writing stories for the wrestling magazines. Okay. What were some of the magazines at the time you wrote for? That uh, I, was a, uh, I was a contributing editor for Ring Wrestling Magazine. Okay. Uh, after, uh, used to buy a lot of photographs from me as well. There was a guy named Tommy Kay who published Big Book of Wrestling, an official wrestling guide, which were my first stories. And just about everybody. I mean, yeah. uh, Napolitano stuff. I mean, it was like George was not having his own magazines until almost I was getting out uh, of the business. Um um, but, um, yeah, I, I have a box full of magazines with my stories and pictures in them. That's amazing. I'm going to have to look through some of my old ones. I got a ton of bo like boxes of magazines. It's like my main yeah. thing that I collect is magazines and I love it. Yeah. So. My first, my first, uh, article was published on Freddie Blassie, uh, hanging the tights up and managing Volkov. And that came out in, uh, fall of 74. And then after that, I'm kind of in all the, all the magazines and, Right. And then it kind of like um, I've always had a, a pair of brass balls, I guess. Um, I, uh, I coaxed my way into an elevator with Willie Gilsenberg, who I thought was the real head of the World Wrestling Worldwide Wrestling Federation at the hotel in New York where their office was at. And I went into the elevator with him and I knew that their offices were on the second floor and I pushed the floor for 18. And so I gave him an elevator pitch, pitching my <laughs> <laughs> literally and i was like I, I write for these magazines and he's just like it made me miss my floor and then we get back to his floor and he says come with me and takes me in the office and there's grillo monsoon and arnold Skolin, and he was like arnie give this kid a press pass and and that's how i i got uh, to be on photographer's row at madison square garden and, and as a kid and uh, that really uh, that really enhanced my photographic abilities because I was right there shooting at ringside. It seemed a little bit looser then, I guess, or like for somebody to get a press pass, it seemed, uh, you know, I mean, you just rode on the elevator with him and then he said, give him a pass. Well, you know? I had my ammunition with me. You see, okay. I had some articles <laughs> and I had right. this little right. press card that I got from Ring Wrestling Magazine. You know, calling me a photographer, you know. So anyway, I had my I had my right. ammunition. <laughs> um, so you also spent some time in the ring as well. Well, very short career from what I understand. <laughs> yeah, one night career. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was uh, in college and I was doing a uh, the first version of the pro wrestling spotlight radio show on the college station. And I was getting ready to graduate from college in a year or so. And I was kind of like, I just want to see what it's like to get in there. Mm -hmm. I had no training and I was close friends with uh, the Grand Wizard, Ernie Roth, yeah. and uh, called him up and I was like, uh, you know, I'd like to, to give it a shot in the ring. And he thought I was nuts. And so I coaxed him a little bit and then uh, he got <laughs> he got me booked on January 10th, 1978 TV tapings in Philly. And I had been there, you know, years backstage taking pictures and then i show up with ring gear and gorilla monsoon just kind of looks at me and you know and 
He goes, where have you worked? And I was like, well, down, you know, down south. And that's all I said. <laughs> and I didn't, of course. And, yeah. And he goes, heal or, heal or baby. And I was like, no, heal, you know. So, yeah. and then I was kind of afraid to get in the dressing room. And any, I, I was even like, I was standing outside the dressing room and I asked Ernie, I said, can you find out who I'm working with? I don't even know. And, and I didn't know I was scheduled for three shows uh, in the same day. But he came out and he whispered to me, Dusty Rhodes, you know. And I was like. I got scared. That's when I got scared. <laughs> I was like, this is real now. And then I get in the dressing room and, and Sylvana Sousa, who's a job guy, enhancement guy who knew me, a lot of guys knew me. And all of a sudden they start like, you know, chit chattering to Monsoon and McMahon. It's been uh, juniors back there. And, and then they put Sousa in uh, with me as a, uh, as a, in a handicap match against Dusty. Because yep. I guess they were like, that's that photographer writer guy, and everything was still kayfabe, you know. Yep. So I guess, uh, and I and I didn't have a good outing. I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't go with a body slam. I was really lucky to get out of there uninjured. Uh, hit Dusty, a, you know, a little hard in the corner, and he whispered, he you know needed to teach me a lesson, and started giving me some elbows that were kind of uh, a little bit harder than I expected. And he sat on my head to pin me, and. <laughs> And uh, and then they put me in a second match with uh, Joe Turco against uh, uh, Chief Peter Mayavia and Chief Jay Strongbow. And in that match, I was told to stay outside the ring the entire time until the finish. And then they and then I'd get a tag in and then I'd just get thrown into the corner. Mayavia head butted me. One, two, three was over. And the third match uh, I was supposed to work that night was against Bob Backlund. And uh, after the second match, they just said, you're done for the night. And I got, I got my $90 and, and that was it. So you decided not to go back and not even try it again? No. No. <laughs> it was kind of cool for the kids at college because yeah. everyone knew that I did it. And then I came yeah. back from Christmas break and, you know, they had a big TV uh, set up in the lobby of our dorm. And the whole freaking dorm shows up and, you know, and sees me wrestle. Uh, so anyway, it was kind of like known as Mr. Wrestling in college and, and, um, it was fun. It was like, you know, would I do it today? No, I thought, I think I was just kind of insane to even do it and try it. Right. I just had a bug up my ass that I wanted to see what it would be like. And I was able to do it. So I got the tapes today, so no harm done. And I got some really good photographs of it. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, a little something you could put in, you know, Put a feather in your cap and say you did. And somebody said no one got hurt. Somebody sent me a clip the other day of you in Dusty in the ring. So oh, yeah. I, that was that was the first time I'd seen it actually. So, yeah. It wasn't yeah. that bad. It was okay. No, no it wasn't that bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Hey, this is the one-man goldmine, the one-man enterprise of professional wrestling and all entertainment, Flynn Hendricks. And you better believe when I'm looking for a good podcast to listen to, I go to my own. I go to the I Know You Hear Me podcast hosted by me, Flynn Hendricks. That is such a fresh perspective for how you should look at life, too. Like, I just, I love that. And then when I'm feeling spooky, I go to my other podcast, Tales from the Haunt, where myself, yeah. I want my head shoved inside a 15-pound silicone mask more. You know, <laughs> I want to have a bucket of sweat coming off me at the end of the night. And just Jeff. Dogs don't like eggs, <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much. Talk to other scare actors about what it takes to get into the world of scare acting. 
So if you're curious about how people became professional wrestlers, actors, prioritized their mental health, became entrepreneurs, avoided burnout, or got into scare acting, you need to go check out I Know You Hear Me and Tales from the Haunt. Available on all podcasting platforms. And I know you hear me. Wrestling fans, promoters, wrestlers, and anyone who enjoys pro wrestling now have something new to be excited about. The Wrestling Fans International Association, the WFIA, is back. WFIA is an association that exists to promote, grow, and support professional wrestling throughout the world. Membership is free. Your membership includes a free digital bi-monthly publication of the Wrestling Fan News newsletter, association updates, voting privileges, and much more. Please go to thewfia.org, that's T-H-E-W-F-I-A.org, and become a member today. Read about the Northern Wrestling Federation in the book presented by Russellville.com, The, the Pro, Pro Wrestling Fault, Volume 2. Hear the story of Roger Ruffin, the man who trained Carl Anderson, the Monster Abyss, Jordan Clearwater, Chris Harrison, Jillian Hall. Plus 45 other short stories including Jazz, Bobby Eaton, Kamala, Thunder Rosa, Mario Mancini, Scott Casey, PJ Black, Kerry Morton, Sal Renaro, Jeremiah Plunkett, Colby Carino, Bam Bam Malone, and many others. Get your book today at Russellville.com. Russellville, it's where wrestling lives. What was the uh, the initial version of the, the first version of the pro wrestling spotlight? Like you said, college radio, and you wanted to try it out, or where, yeah. did you have radio aspirations as a college student? Yeah, I went to. Um, it's, it was a communications. Uh, the first college I went to in Boston was Graham Junior College, and it was a radio and television school. Mm-hmm. It was to learn radio broadcasting, television broadcasting, and it was all communications. A small uh, private junior college. So that's where it started. I had listened. There were some radio shows in the New York market when I was a kid uh, that were on WHBI, and I was fascinated. Bill After did uh, some radio stuff, and and there was this weekly show that was on like at one in the morning, and that's where I first heard wrestling talk on the radio. And when I went to college, I just, I just, you know, there there had auditions for the college radio station, and I'm like, I'm really not a DJ. I don't want to be a DJ. I said, let me see if I could do a wrestling show. So I, I submitted a demo. And then when the listing came out of who got air, air positions at the college station, I saw Saturdays at 5 p.m. Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And I lit up and I was off to the races, you know. What were those early shows like? Were they different? I mean, as compared to like the later shows, like did you uh, have guests no, on I mean, constantly? Yeah. Oh yeah, I did because I yeah. was already I already had backstage access and mm-hmm. in, and interviewed uh, guys for the magazine articles I was writing, and so I did have guests. You know, yeah. I did, you know the Grand Wizard, Superstar Billy Graham, Captain Lou Albano, Freddie Blassie. So uh, a handful of those shows exist. As I tried to digitize them, they were so old. That mm-hmm. you know, you try, you put them in a, in the tape machine, and they would snap. Or and it was just yeah. like so. I got about four or five of them that remain that have been digitized, and it's really fascinating to look back. It was all kayfabe. Yeah, it was all kayfabe. Are are those four or five available up on like Patreon or whatever? They, they are on Patreon. They, yes, they are on Patreon. They are okay. on Patreon. And okay. uh, yeah, I used to get uh, there was a sports director of the station who just didn't see wrestling as a sport. And and, yeah. and he would bust my chops almost every show, call in and kind of argue with me. And uh, and then I, I actually got suspended. Uh, it was my first season. 
on 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 the college station with the show and it was the christmas episode and he called in to argue with me again and and i cut you know i hung up after a while and i whispered under my breath a word that started with a c it was a blank sucker you know <laughs> and it went out over the air unfortunately <laughs> He did and I got not like called that. in and, and got yeah. suspended for a few weeks. And he did too, because he was antagonizing me. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the, here's the funniest part of the story. Cause it was the night of our Christmas party. One of the Christmas parties in the dorms before Christmas break. And, mm -hmm. and he was, uh, I guess the correct terminology today would be a little person. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. And he he he'd had, he'd had a few cocktails in him. And by the time I showed up at the party, he was wearing this little Santa hat. And when I when I walked into the party, he saw me and he started chasing me like he wanted to attack me. <laughs> that sounds like something out of a laughing. movie. <laughs> I was laughing. It was like it, it could have been part of a, a, a comedy movie for sure. And I don't know if he was carrying a hammer. Or he had something in his hand like chasing me around. And I just laughed. But, hey, we got suspended. And then we eventually made friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, in 1989, you guys started up again. And you guys were, was it, was it 1989 that yeah, you started up again? Show, yeah, yeah I, I graduated college. Uh, yeah. I, I got out of wrestling. I wanted to work for the New York Mets in the minor leagues. Then I got into music. And then, at, and then I, I really didn't keep in touch with wrestling until I started watching in 84 when the Rock and Roll Connection started with Cindy right. Lauper and all that stuff. So I really got fascinated with it again. I actually started, uh, I moved back to New York in uh, 85 and because uh, I'd been living in North Carolina, I've been traveling around a bit, music business, whatnot, baseball. Uh, and uh, in 1985, um, I uh, went with uh, George Napolitano and I, uh, actually, I was working for a uh, local Long Island radio station, WNYG, right. uh, and I convinced the owners to give me a wrestling talk show called Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And and we had one show that aired in October of 1985. Uh, Lou Albano was on that show and Tully Blanchard and George was my co-host. We were doing the show together. Uh, but there was a record out, the WWE, the wrestling album, and, yep. and there was a track called Captain Lou's History of Music or something. And we were playing that on the show. And the owner of the station, who was about 80 years old, happened to be in the, the studio that day. And he heard it and he just was like, what's this on my station? <laughs> and we got thrown off the air after one show. Um, and then, That's you know, funny. and then a few years later, four years later, almost, I went back to the station and I wanted to start a talk show and, and uh and i did and that's where the show started up and you know as a regular weekly show was april 9th 1989 with pro wrestling spotlight yeah. uh somebody now i'm gonna ask you about a guy that was a semi-regular guest obviously he had a tragic ending um but uh, mark tenler was a frequent guest on your show at, at times he was he yeah. was actually on the first show he was on like he was on, and he's the one that introduced me to uh, Al Schaefer, Broadway, Sunny Blaze. When, right. I, when I knew I was doing the radio show, I contacted Mark. I knew he was promoting a show. I saw some ads, and then I, I, he, brought, he brought me down to his place, and I had met him. I had met him years ago, just kind of taking some pictures of him when he was working at the Nassau Coliseum shows once a month, uh, but never knew, really knew him until this. But Mark was a, you know, Mark was a, a worker. He was... He was uh, he was an interesting cat. He really was. He was yeah. very interesting. So 
he would come on and I try to help promote him and, you know, and that's how I got to know Mark, but he was a piece of, he was a piece of work. That guy really yeah, sounded like it from those shows, but uh, his yeah. grandson wrestles actually. Um, uh, he wrestles under the name death Mark and uh, he was a okay. guest on here, like really early on, like a couple years ago and nice kid, but yeah. you know, yeah. So yeah, Mark left yeah. an interesting legacy. That's for sure. Well, yeah, there was, um, I always find out more of as, as I, uh, his name comes up sometimes, you know, there's always something to learn. There was an article that came out. I don't remember recently, somewhat recently, like in the last couple months about him. And oh, really? Yeah. I have to find it. Maybe I'll, if I find it, I'll send it to you. Hi, this is Bob Smith. You might remember me from my years at pro wrestling illustrated magazine. Well, now I've started a brand new podcast called the outdated wrestling hour. Yes, we're going to take a whimsical look back at the wrestling figures, stars, and trends from years gone by. We're talking 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and a whole lot more. There's going to be laughs. There's going to be fun. There's going to be action. You name it. Please tune in for the outdated wrestling hour wherever you get your podcast. Available on all streaming platforms. It's professional wrestling's greatest, largest, privately owned wrestling library. All the classic hits, flips, slams, and pins of yesteryear are on one place. It's all to my classic wrestling. Check out the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, Mr. USA, Tony Atlas, Tito Santana, Rick Martel, a who's who of professional wrestling's greatest spotlight stars ever to grace the squared circle all in one place. Grab the best seat in the house for memories and mayhem on Ultimate Classic Wrestling. Um, of course, Sonny Blaze uh, mm -hmm. was a regular on the show in the beginning. And of course the power twins, uh, so they seem to be in character 24 seven and yeah, man. Day. Yeah. To this day. And it seems like they're, they were off the charts, I guess. And, um, <laughs> from what I remember, and I think I heard on your podcast a while back that they would just start showing up to the, to the show, to the studio and not even, you know, being asked and kind of just come in and make themselves a part of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's pretty accurate. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. was it like working with those guys? Was that like uh stressful at the time? Like because those yeah. guys were always in character. Yeah, yeah because yeah. I, I didn't know them that well, obviously. Yeah. I met them just recently and they were intimidating. And yeah. they were never the thing with them is they were never out of character. Right. So every line was an insult, or every line they really were never out of character. And Broadway singer Blaze, Al, you know, he'd show up too. But, you know, Al, I, I enjoyed his company and I'd welcome him to the studio. And then kind of I invited him to come every week. But the twins were just, they showed up and they wanted it. And, and uh, it was quite intimidating sometimes. And, and things they used to say to the callers, yeah, it's just crazy stuff. Uh, but, you know, you get to know people and I got to know them. And I knew that, you know, this is part, this is who they are. They're not mm -hmm. going to change. You learn to accept it. You learn to go with the flow. Uh, if not, then, you know, you turn the page on them. But I found them very amusing after I got to know them very well. And and they would always provide good radio because people hated them. And I think yeah. the hate was, like, legitimate from the fans. <laughs> and they just pissed them off. And um, and then I got to work with them and use them on some shows as I became a promoter later on. And uh, and our, our friendship <laughs> it remains to this day. I see them in Vegas when I go out there for the uh, Cauliflower Alley reunion. And and they're the only people I've ever met that in every single photograph that they're in, they have their middle finger up. 
<laughs> still. <laughs> That's funny. Um, the first time I ever saw them was in, uh, they worked for Herb Abrams on his television program. So okay. I know Herb was, uh, did you work with Herb uh, yeah. for the UWF? And I heard oh, yeah. that there was yeah. some uh, not so uh, an unpaid days, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, there was some paid, but mostly unpaid. I really was the catalyst for him in New York. You yeah. know, he was a, first he he formed the UWF and he made the official announcement in the press conference at my first convention in 1990. Uh, that's when he brought Dan Spivey and B. Brian Blair and they did an angle for Sports Channel in the conference room, which was unbeknownst to me. I didn't know that that was going to go on and they would start breaking things. Yeah. Uh, and that's the press conference where media was asking questions and Herb was just saying some pretty interesting things. But at that and then he wanted to break the New York market and I helped him. Uh, I, you know, I helped market that first show at the Penta. Uh, we sold, I think we close to sold out that first show at the Penta, the very first one. And uh, he'd come on my show. He'd bring all the UWF guys on my show, WGBB. And, and, uh, but the work that was involved in this, trying to help him on that mm -hmm. first run and, and seeing what type of individual he was, although he was entertaining and he was, you know, a little nutty and, he had a vision, but he was also out of his fucking mind. Um, <laughs> and he had, you know, the, you know, the, he had that, the, the problem with, uh, with, uh, yeah. with cocaine, um, yeah. you know, to the point where he named his dog Cokie. Um, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> wow. So I, I worked with him and then, you know, and, and, and after those first couple of shows, the checks didn't clear. And, and uh, I just was like, this guy doesn't appreciate anything anyway. Yeah, but that and that was the end of that. I heard there was um, that I heard this story like a while back. Like he would have two different checking accounts for the business for the company. Like he's paying guys like Bruno from one just to make sure that they'd come back and stuff like that, and then he's yeah, just the, paying talent yeah, the from empty another account and the yeah. account with money in it. Yeah, so I just found that like really interesting, but not surprised by by any means. So. No, I mean he was a fascinating, very bizarre individual, and uh, and a Really, if you look at it, a very historic figure in the business during that time period. Yeah. And there's not a lot of people that say bad things about him, even though he bounced mm -hmm. checks and he was nuts and and you know he was out of his mind. But but he had this endearing way about him, right? That people actually couldn't hate him. Yeah, he was. Uh, I thought that it's so weird because he did. You know, he was able to get on television. He had all these legends working for him. You know what I mean? And I mean, look at he gave Cactus or McFoley TV. Before he like really broke out as a star, like became yeah. a huge star. I mean, he, I mean you know, I, I had witnessed um, Mick and you know world class, and uh, I think he worked he worked WCW before that. But then he, you know, he was doing shots and uh, for Herb, and it's just it's incredible some of the ta the talent that he had there. It was kind of uh, it was just amazing, really. No, some he had a great he, uh, he had do. great yeah. he had great lineup. I mean, he met Cactus and a number of guys at my first convention. Um, and yeah, I mean, there was uh, a huge array of talent and uh, even that UWF taping, uh, you know, some of the enhancement guys we got for him and uh, Broadway did. I mean, so it was it was cool. And Cactus, he gave kind of he really gave Mick Foley uh, Mick's first real kind of substantial push mm -hmm. on TV. Right. Yeah. So I know that's a, that's somebody that was actually uh, you became pretty good friends with over the years was Mick Foley as well and uh, yeah you have some interesting stories about him as well uh, that you've played on your podcast um, you know and uh, I've met him several times I saw him about two years ago and I think he's, he was just like one of the nicest guys still to this day 
he is. How did that friendship uh, develop, really? Well, it was uh, it was through Al Schaefer that okay. I met Mick for the first time, and and Al had talked to me about him and and brought him down to the radio show. Uh, it was September of '89, and met Mick and just immediately took a liking to him, and and uh, he lived on Long Island, and you know then he come over. Uh, and show me some tapes of him in world class and 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 a friendship developed. Uh, so it was a friendship that uh, endured and Mick uh, was one of the most frequent guests on the show uh, and um, it endures to this day. I mean, it's uh, he's a wonderful individual. Uh, we've spent a lot of personal time together, uh, you know, family barbecues, things like that back in the 90s. Uh, I mean, he uh, so we have a long, a long friendship and uh out of everybody i've met in the wrestling business he's really probably on the top of the list of being one of the nicest guys ever that's nice that's awesome um i do want to ask you know you booked you used to book bus trips a lot of yeah. them yeah. uh when wcw was trying to break into my market in uh new haven connecticut area you booked a bunch here so what was that what was all that like well you know and uh what was the crowds like that i remember attending one of the shows and i don't Honestly, it was so long ago, I don't really remember much about it because I was kind of in my early teen years, you know. So what was that like breaking in? And, uh, you know, what do you think of New Haven? That's one thing. That's, like, I don't know I mean, it was, I've, I've yeah. seen those, some concerts there, but, of course, the wrestling shows. And it was the yeah. bus trips were just listeners. Uh, and uh, the shows were, you know, at the time, the NWA uh, was really trying to make some inroads in New York. And they had a freaking fabulous array of talent. Right. And that was hard hitting for me. That was kind of like a different style than the WWF and more right. realistic. So I was hoping that they would get over. But, you know, there was never uh, I think they lacked strong house show promotion. Right. I don't think that they worked the towns enough previous, you know, before they would get to a town. I don't know what their media spends were. I mean, there's a ways to promote a show. Yeah. And it was always kind of like this could have been so much better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's I ironic agree. because this week on my new podcast is coming out. We're reviewing the show that they did at Madison Square Garden at the theater at the Paramount, which was connected to it, which was such a fiasco. They'd waited so long to get to New York City and to break in. And they were at the garden, but not in the garden. They were in the garden, <laughs> but not in the main arena. Right. And, they, and they screwed it up big time. And that's what the show is focused on. Uh, the one that comes out this week. What year was that? Uh, it was in 1993. It was okay. 30 years ago in April of okay. 93. Okay. So that's cool. that's what the show does. It goes back 30 years to the week. Of course, like you said, that your show was probably the first to like break kayfabe at that time period. I remember you guys, you know, covering uh, the steroid trials, stuff like that. Uh, you guys had somebody like Dave Meltzer on who obviously was another guy that's not necessarily through radio, but through his newsletter was also very influential as well. Uh, Donnie Liable was a regular part of that show. And I still enjoy listening to your podcast now when he does like the bios on the certain guys that you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Donnie's a 50 year old, 50 year long friendship. And uh, we still talk several times a week and he was great. He's great. Those tributes to the, the wrestlers even recently i brought him back to do that for sunny blaze when he appeared and, yep. uh so he's done that uh yeah so donnie as far as anyone being like a right hand person to an organ right. to me i mean he was my right hand he had my back uh he was there for whatever was needed 
and he had passion and enthusiasm that lasts to this day. Uh, and of course, you guys switched stations because I guess it was some sort of like the, the people that owned the initial station, if I remember, it was they were kind of older, out of date. The Hornsteins, yeah, yes, Mr. that's Mur it. Muriel Hornstein and her husband Saul. And uh, they just Mama weren't Pop going station. for, yeah, they just weren't going for the show, basically. Well, I was, uh, I was brokering, which means I paid for my airtime. Okay. So uh, that there was no, there was nobody giving a wrestling talk show a job back then. Right. Some stations brokered airtime, and that's what I did. Uh, so I had an opportunity in uh, September of 1990. I was on the air at NYG 89, April of 89. And then I had an opportunity to go to a bigger station with a bigger signal, which would give me not just a kind of a, a radius. It would give me a large, and I was 1240 WGBB, and their signal went down into New Jersey, to Atlantic City, into Queens and Brooklyn. So I had a much larger opportunity uh, to reach more fans, and that's why that move was made. Um, let's see. You also did announcing for the Savoldis, and you had them on re or somewhat uh, frequently. I guess Mario came on a couple times, especially when he was relaunching. When uh, was it Mario? I think it was Mario. Yeah. Uh, when they were relaunching, when they did the merger, and uh, it was becoming IWCCW, and right. you did some announcing for them for ICW as well. Yeah, I would go there and uh, go to their TV and see whatever I can do to help. I was there, and I wanted to break into announcing more. I, I really had aspirations to try to do play-by-play -play or to do a back, to be a ringside or backstage interviewer. Um, and uh, and that was kind of the deal with uh, him. I helped promote his uh, shows and give him mentions on the air, bring, bring him on or bring on the guys that he had on top, like Tony Atlas and Vic Steamboat at the time. Uh, and yeah, so that, that's pretty much what it was. There was no money, you know, yeah. never any money, but it was, it was fun. Yeah. I just interviewed Mario last week and it was very interesting. Uh, How's he doing? He's awesome. He's 80 years old. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was great. And that's, that was an interview I wanted to get for a couple of years. And we finally, he just launched this new app, uh, for Roku and fire stick with it's got yeah. all the stuff he owns is going up there. So, you know, uh, it's really great. Because, you know, he owns a lot of rare footage from, like, companies yes. like North, uh, South Atlantic, and he owns Puerto Rican footage and all sorts of stuff. So it's really cool that uh, a lot of this stuff is finally getting its due because, you know, there's nowhere else to watch it, really, unless you find multi-generations. He's got a great archives, and, and it's funny because uh, his dad, Angelo Savoldi, um, was one of the guys who uh, was backstage at the, all the all the WWF shows. He had a piece of the business at the time, and yeah. and he for some reason he never really he throw me out of the locker room. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean there were just things that I was like, how do I get how do I get this guy to kind of like me? Yeah, and uh, Mario at the time was uh, refereeing. Yes, so I uh, I wrote a story on Mario. And took pictures of him and Angelo together, and it appeared in Ring Magazine, and and that kind of warmed him up to me once that article came out, and that's how I got to know Mario a little bit, also. No, yeah, he was he was great. He had some great stories, and he told some some great information. It was it was pretty awesome. Um, but you could do got to do uh, commentary with. Uh, you have memories of working with Tony Rumble or anything with Tony Rumble? Oh yeah, he was a great guy. Yeah. Yeah, the Boston yeah. bad boy. I mean, yeah. he was just so, such a thick Boston accent, and he was a old. He was a very consummate heel, very insulting. 
Uh, he was having a New England version of the Power Twins in the way he would <laughs> talk. But he, he, you know, we became friends and um, even had him at a couple of my conventions. And um, good guy. I miss him. Yeah. Uh, he used to run shows here now where I live now, Wallingford, Connecticut. I'm sure you do you know yeah. Wallingford, Connecticut. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> because there used to be, uh, I think that uh, when he ran the Century Wrestling Alliance, that's or. They started running here out of a car dealership, and that was like some of the first independent shows I started going to back in the day. So it's uh, that was kind of my first exposure, like in real life outside of television to independent wrestling. You know, that those were always fun shows. I thought they were packed and they had like a, an, an intense amount of talent. So a lot of cousin Luke's and <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, cousin Luke was also very good for running uh, for working for like Tommy Jeanette's uh, Northeast Championship yeah. Wrestling. He was on every single show. Yes. yes. Yeah. So those were, those were fun times, you know? Uh, yeah, yes, it was. Yeah. And uh, let's see, tell me about, you guys were on, you were on Phil Donahue at one point as well. Yeah. Uh, that was during the sex scandal stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was a, a very surreal day. Obviously it was a media frenzy. It was a feeding frenzy that was going on. And, um, and it was just kind of this volatile time in the Donahue show I look back at it today and I'm not really happy with my appearance, the dark glasses. And um, it was a very bizarre, surreal day. Yeah. To put it lightly. Yeah. I, I remember that. I remember watching that. And then every now and again, I'll go back on YouTube and watch. It's pretty interesting to listen to some of the stories that came out of there, you know, and uh, at one time, and I don't know if this is going to be sensitive, but were, were you were friends with uh, Mel Phillips at one point? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Mel was uh, somebody I met. I met him in 1974 mm -hmm. at the uh, Wrestling Fans International Association convention in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And that's the year that I got the fan club of the year and best monthly bulletin voted by the WFIA. And Mel uh, was voted fan of the year at that time. And that's where I met Mel. And then Mel would tell me that he was, uh, he, you know, working for the Athletic Commission on Pennsylvania, and he was doing this. And, and uh, you know, I kind of looked up to the guy. And uh, as I got to know him in the 70s, there was, you know, he was liked by a lot of people. But uh, there were some quirks about him that, um, uh, that I found rather strange. Um, even... Uh, uh, you know, there there's there's a lot to uncover there. I mean, in regards yeah. to just kind yeah. of the you get a gut feeling about something sometimes. Yep. And, yeah. uh, and Mel would even come visit me when I was in college, uh, when I started college there. And and, uh, you know, I had one when he came up and, uh, you know, I had a girlfriend and all that. And he was kind of like, why are you hanging out with her? You know, so. So, I mean, it, it, but it was just kind of weird. He did a lot of weird things like. uh uh, there was a friend of mine at college that he, you know, when he, when he visited me, you know, he'd go in the guy's room and start trying to wrestle him and put him in a leg lock or foot lock or whatever. I mean, he just had these bizarre ways about him. So when all this stuff started coming out, uh, it really was kind of like, ah, there you go. There's it added up. <laughs> it added up pretty quickly. Yeah. Right. Uh, during uh, Ricky Steamboat's contract dispute, he was a guest on your show at some point. Yeah. Yeah, so, that was that was kind of the that was one of the catalysts. Yeah, that kind of turned it into this more serious show. Yeah, because when you have a guy who just was a world champion come on and discuss why he left an organization over a contract dispute, mm -hmm. that was never talked about publicly right. before. 
Right. And then when Meltzer reprinted it and wrote about it, and then all of a sudden it's everywhere. And then Jim Hurd wants to answer it, and he comes on my show. So it kind of turned it turned into a little bit more insider, and it started to evolve at that time then to me wanting to get more information from these guys at a character and to talk about stuff that was breaking cape. So that's how that evolution really started. How, how do you um, feel about how, like, how his wife, I guess she was his manager at the time. How important do you think Bonnie. she was to that? Yeah. Bonnie. Uh, how important do you think that was uh, to like the down, like his relationship with WCW at the time, the NWA or, at the time, like the uh, the downfall of their relationship, I don't know, you know, fully. Yeah, I, I think that that played a part in it, as far as from what I can assess, uh, because when I booked Ricky on some uh, events, you know, she was the she was the booker. She negotiated with me. Uh, she kind of uh, uh, was dominant, you know, yeah. over him in some way. So I know she probably had a, a big influence on on his decisions at the time. Yeah. Um, you also booked him. Yeah, you booked him for some signings and stuff, right? At, uh, oh, yeah. If I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first one I booked him was uh, a plumbing company on Long Island for. That's right. It was yeah. WNYG Herber Plumbing, and it drew a phenomenal crowd. And then I was like, there's people listening to this show, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, so because people showed up. And, uh, and then I booked him at my first convention in 1990. And um, yeah, I booked him a few times. And always a gentleman. Always very, very, very accommodating, very nice, very gracious to the fans, uh, true gentleman. And and uh, I respect the guy immensely to this. Yeah, day. he's um, I felt like his NWA title run was a little bit underwhelming as much as everybody wanted to see it. It just, you know, it was it was an awesome series of matches with Flair. But once he was a champion, it didn't seem to go anywhere like he wasn't necessarily wrestling anybody top talent, it seemed, you know. For for that group for the NWA, I mean, you know, when you have bookers and yeah. things are political, so yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why he couldn't have succeeded. I mean, he was a guy that had charisma and he was a great worker, and maybe it was just uh, you know the program or the angles, or they just maybe quite didn't get what to do with him, and they didn't put him in yeah. compelling storylines too. Um, but you know, there's not too many people like a Ric Flair that can right. carry a company and right. be known as the champion. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's really a, a lot of it comes down to like how it's uh, how the storylines are written and with WCW at the time and NWA, I mean, shit change it on the fly. Anyway, they would make a decision and next week change the whole direction. I mean, so yeah, they were changing rapidly at that time going towards the, you know, I think that was the Jim Hurd era. Right. And then they were just coming in and bring it, trying to bring in more childish, gimmicks not childish but yeah. you know they were well, trying yeah, well, to idiotic yeah. no idiotic gimmicks <laughs> like the yeah. ding dongs yeah and all the bells the tag team with the bells all over them you throw them into the ropes and the bells start falling off and yeah and he, and wanted those... to, he wanted to put do a hunchback gimmick so you know a guy could never be pinned because he's a hunchback i mean this is what jim heard wanted to do so yeah crazy it was in my eyes it looked like he was trying to compete with the way WWF was doing like the cartoonish type gimmicks, yeah, but then in a poor his, man's way, they were so outlandish, like some of the ideas, like yeah. even worse than, you know? Uh, so of course you left wrestling for quite some time. You got involved in country music and how's that? 
It was uh, for me. It was uh, it was very welcomed. Uh, I had gotten. Yeah. I had been in wrestling eighty nine to ninety towards the end of ninety six. Yeah. And it was uh, it was traumatic for me. I was trying yeah. to make a living. I couldn't mm-hmm. make a living. I couldn't get employed by any of the, the two bigger companies. I was way overweight. I was known as this, you know, this guy, this investigative journalist. I mean, uh, but it, it was just kind of like and then I, I meet Vince Russo and, I, you know, I bring him into the business and then that shit happens and we split up and he goes on to do this. And I'm like, I had to get out. I had to get out and I got out in November of 96 and went into uh, ad, ad sales for a uh, Long Island country radio station, which segued into a position as the head of music marketing for New York City country radio station. And then I get the opportunity to move to Nashville in 2000 to open up the offices for a television network called Great American Country and run music marketing for them and then national account development. And uh, so I had it, you know wonderful run there. Uh, and then I went on to be a vice president for a record company in town. Uh, you know, discovered a kid named Kelsey Ballerini, who's um, one of the biggest uh, artists today in that field and had a good running country. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, you get older. Um, generations of artists kind of change. Uh, you know, like today, working, uh, I really got out of the music business here in twenty. 20 when the pandemic hit uh was doing an artist development company and crowdfunding um for them and i just discovered that the kids today that are going up have different values than the artists yeah. that i was familiar with back in the day as they say but there was uh, it was a disconnect there was a disconnect with the whole music business and the way they were i mean artists Today, a lot of them, you know, are more focused on taking a picture of what they're eating for lunch than going to a studio and write a song, you know. So I, I aged out of yep. uh, of of that uh, pure artist development. Yeah, everything is social media these days. Mm-hmm. It's just, uh, you know, and I do like some, you know, older country and some, the, I guess, the more alternative country acts of today. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but a it's traditional not- country. Yeah, it's like uh, you you know who Jason Isbell is, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, there's this great documentary I just watched last night uh, on HBO Max, and it was phenomenal. And I was just like, man, I just I hadn't listened to him in a while. It's like I just, man, this guy is such a great songwriter. He really is. Yeah, I mean those artists from back back then. I mean, I I love uh, you know even the just the traditional country. I mean, that's what I fell in love with because I I, I discovered a, a a girl uh, named Patty Loveless who uh, uh, in 1981 uh, in Shelby, North Carolina, and, and, I, and I quit my job with the Mets um, uh, to manage her. Uh, I didn't get her her record deal. Uh, her brother did in 1985, but um, Patty was inducted uh, into the country. Well, she will be inducted in October, but she got the official announcement that she has been uh, inducted in the Country Music Hall of Fame. Uh, that announcement happened a few weeks ago, and uh, that's awesome. She is yeah. amazing. So I, I, I kind of had, uh, I kind of had my fingers in uh, the help of, of several artists that kind of made it pretty big. Well, who else, uh, if you don't mind me asking, uh, besides that, obviously everybody knows who Patty Loveless is, but who else have you uh, you worked with? 
Uh, well, I mean, at the at the at the network, uh, I yeah. used to help put together marketing campaigns for uh, artists that were just kind of breaking through. And one of the initiatives I worked uh, on uh, this was two thousand six uh, was Taylor Swift. Okay. Uh, Great American Country uh, was the first national TV network to put her on TV. Uh, when I was at GAC, uh, Scott Borchetta, who was the head of the label, uh, come in to have a, a meeting with us about a 16-year-old kid he had signed. And uh, we had a very there. And we decided to put her in a series of vignettes called Shortcuts. And the sponsors that were brought in were Oscar Meyer and uh, Dairy Queen. And uh, so we kind of featured these little vignettes that would run and people would think they're part of programming, but they were actually paid. So it would be like one vignette. She goes, hi, my name is Taylor Swift and I'm 16 year olds and I want to be a country star. And then we have a little video of her recording in the studio and she'd be wearing an Oscar Mayer T-shirt or, you know, like product placement. And we ran like 16 episodes of that with her. Uh, But, yeah, she was one of them. But. as far as me helping, there's an artist I managed for four years here named Sarah Darling. Mm-hmm. And Sarah was somebody that when I was the vice president of Black River Entertainment, uh, uh, I managed her. And uh, she became somebody who played the Grand Ole Opry 80 times. We toured with just about everybody. Uh, she got a lot of airplay uh, with a song called Home to Me, which hit number 34 on Billboard. And uh, we also, uh, when I executive produced her uh, one of her first mu- big music videos uh, called Something to Do With Your Hands, I booked AJ Styles to be her love interest in it. So uh, I wanted Mick Foley, but she didn't want Mick. She was like, I can't see myself. Like, well, what about this kid here? He's just starting out. Oh, hey, I like him. Yeah. So, and that's how it's gotten like, you know, millions of views or whatever on YouTube. And it's kind of funny. It's called Something to Do Your Hands. And AJ played the uh the part of somebody we called mr handy <laughs> he was like a a, a a repairman and she'd break all of the appliances in the house so she can call him to fix the stuff and, <laughs> and a relationship ensued <laughs> that's funny that's pretty interesting yeah, i'm gonna have to look that up yeah it's it's a it's a very it's a very very cool video i mean the color yeah. popped it was all retro like a 50s kitchen and yeah and it was really cool but then we did a uh, uh uh we were involved in a charity project for uh sir paul <clears throat> mccartney's uh, uh wife that passed linda mccartney so um uh a gentleman uh, named david ross came to town and uh, he was putting together an album so i i, I worked with him a little bit and we got sarah darling to do a cover of the beatles blackbird uh, for the tribute album, and that went way up on the on the video charts. And we produced three different music videos of that. So I did a lot of creative stuff, and we almost we got this close to having McCartney uh, come to the ACM Awards and sing with her on it, but um, that didn't work out. But hey, listen, it's been a crazy life. I've done some really cool things in music, and now I'm doing wrestling again and also i'm back in the i'm back in baseball which is crazy what are you doing for baseball now um this is how your life goes okay 1981 i got hired uh, my lifelong dream was to work for the new york mets i was always a big mets fan i went to the baseball winter meetings in 1980 got hired and they put me in the minor leagues in 1981 in shelby north carolina 
And I did sales, marketing, announcing, and part of my deal was to house ball players. So um, I had roommates. Uh, one guy was named John Gibbons. Uh, and John was their number one draft pick along with Daryl Strawberry. And uh, so John and I shared a house. He eventually, you know, made the team and he was also a, a part player on the 86 Mets. Uh, and then John went on to have a very cool career with the Toronto Blue Jays, managing the Blue Jays for 10 years until 2018. Yep. We always stayed in touch. Yep. Um, and when he left the Blue Jays, uh, I was also helping his daughter here in Nashville because she was trying to break in and I opened some doors for her. So we maintained a friendship. And when he got let go by the Blue Jays at the end of 2018, I kept in touch. And uh, I always told him he should do a book. And he was like, who's going to want to read a book on me? I was like, you know, you know you're beloved up there. And then finally in 2019, early 2020, whatever it was, I called him up and because I had just gotten my book deal with a Toronto publisher. Right. And uh, John agreed to write the forward in that book. And, and they said, can you, you know, if John ever wanted to write a book, we'd love to sign him. So I called him up one day and I was like, hey, Gibby, how you doing? What are you doing? He was like, I'm just sitting here planting trees in his yard. So I was like, what about this book thing? And then all of a sudden he was like, well, maybe yes. Uh, and, uh, and then, you know, within a week, I reach out to ECW Press, and and on April the 4th of this year, the Gibby book is out, uh, and uh, it's on the bestseller list in Canada right now, like okay. on the, the bestseller list. And John and I started a podcast okay. called, called The Gibby Show, which is the number one baseball podcast in Canada. I do it every Monday with him. So uh, that's out there. It's called The Gibby Show, and every Monday, John and I – well, John gets the guest, and he gets – the top names uh, in in the baseball industry to come on the show. I mean, we've had an incredible array of guests. Like this week for tomorrow's taping, we have Jordan Romano, who's a closer for the Blue Jays. And uh, last week we had uh, Kevin Kermeyer, their new center fielder. And a few weeks ago we had Alex uh, – well, we had John Schneider, the manager of the Blue Jays, on the show. So it's a it's a very popular show, and Gibby is a very interesting dude. So there you go. I've known the guy 42 years, and you know now we're doing business with each other. Great. That sounds interesting. I'm going to have to check that out. I really want to check that out now that – uh, I was uh, – it's funny you mentioned the 86 Mets, and uh, it's unfortunate, but I was uh, – I'm a Red Sox fan, so that was not a very good year between the two teams. So. Yeah, I love the Sox too, though, man. I, I went to Boston. I fell in love with the Red Sox. Yeah, you know, I was there. I was there the year that uh, I was at the playoff game where Bucky Dent hit the home run. Wow! My first year of college was Carlton Fisk home run in the World Series. I mean, so I I I love the Red Sox to this day. That's awesome. That's great. Um, let's see. Is there anything else that you want to cover before we uh, get out of here? No, I, you know, I appreciate it. I mean, we're all over the place a little bit, but I've had an all That's over fine. the place type of life. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I enjoy what I'm doing today. I enjoy the rest. I, I enjoy going back 30 years on the podcast, which is yeah. John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight. I enjoy listening to the shows that I hadn't heard in 30 years and then talking about them. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And I do another podcast called Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, which covers uh, the house shows I went to 50 years ago. So uh, every month, 
you know, in honor of that 50th anniversary of a house show that I went to, we do a podcast about that. And the Gibby shows on Mondays, uh, it comes out every Monday. It's on YouTube. It's on every podcast platform. And if you're a baseball fan, I think you, you kind of dig it. I'm definitely going to check that out. Uh, John, I want to thank you so much. And yeah, it was all over the place, but like you said, you've had some interesting stories and I wanted to get a little bit of everything in here. So, and I'm a fan of your podcast. So everybody that, if you guys aren't aware of it, I want everybody that listen to me go check yeah, it out. Want, it's, it's a lot of fun, especially if you love wrestling from that era. Yeah, I have I have over on the uh, on my Patreon, if you don't mind, uh, patreon.com slash John Arezzi. I have over 200 radio shows on there. I mean, all unedited. The original shows are there. So uh, you really get a kick at it. For five bucks a month, you can get in and, and listen to an incredible amount of archives. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, John, thank you very much. I appreciate this. And, My uh, pleasure.